Let's go. Let's do it. Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. Meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a fisherman and a professional host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far and near reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures in wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after, a quiet mind and some time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm going to start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I have been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Let's go. Our guest today is Al Perkinson. Al has been an executive in the outdoor industry for the past 20 years. He is a brand builder and a growth and growth agent who believes that social responsibility and great storytelling are keys to building beloved brands. Al is the founder and CEO of Bahio Sunglasses based in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Bahio designs and builds performance sunglasses for anglers and other water enthusiasts. It is a privately held company with a mission to operate sustainably and contribute to addressing environmental issues faced by the world's oceans. Prior to starting Bahio, Al was in senior management roles at Huck, Hook, I'm not sure how to pronounce, Huck Apparel, Sims Fishing Products, and owned a consulting practice, which included clients of the likes of Orvis, Trout Unlimited, Guy Harvey, Pure Fishing, and so on. Al was CMO for Costa Sunglasses for more than 12 years, where he was responsible for business strategy, brand, marketing, e-commerce, and apparel. He helped the brand achieve a 20% annual growth rate and a sales price that was the highest multiple ever paid in the industry. Al was named by Outdoor Life magazine as one of the 25 most influential people in conservation, received the Lefty Cray Sportsman of the Year Award from Bonefish Tarpon and Trust, and was named Angler of the Year by Fly Fisherman magazine. Al was elected to the Explorers Club in New York City and is an, is an active member. I first met Al when we were both fishing the permit tournaments in Key West back in 2016. Al's willingness to think outside the box, commitment to the resources we are lucky enough to work in and on, and entrepreneurial spirit and vision are all traits that I have a tremendous respect for. I look forward to diving deeper into Al's story today and hearing more about his wild ride with Bahio since launching the company in 21. Without further ado, please welcome Al Perkinson to the show. What's up, Al? What's up, Mike? How you doing, buddy? Good, man. It's great to uh, it's great to connect. I know that we had a a couple of moments before we started recording, and it's always the most awkward part because the magic starts to evolve before you sit down, and it's really weird when someone walks in and just be like, "Sit down," you know. <laughs> Sure. Um, it's been a minute, so I can't wait to diving into uh, 
a little bit of the ride you've been on. But what uh, what brings you to Jackson? Well, I'm on a trip out west. I'm going up to Bozeman uh, when I leave here. And I've got some buddies that I fish with every year. We started this thing called Seam. And it's guys who, for the most part, are head of marketing for you know various outdoor brands and others. And we just get together and fish and talk and try to help each other sort through all the stuff we need to sort through out there and, um, you know, keep our brands as authentic and purpose-driven as we can. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And and you're going to do it every year, same time frame or just? Yeah, we've been doing it now for, I think, 11 or 12 years. Wow, that's very yeah. cool. So we got the guys from Yeti, from uh, New Belgium, you know, from, uh, you know, lots of different brands. Uh, Olakai has been part of it in the past. Uh, but yeah, brands like that, that, um, you know, have, have all been, you know, Haller brothers have all been on a really fast growth trajectory Sure, and, you know, changes in management and ownership structures and stuff like that. And so trying to stay authentic, trying to stay, you know, true to your values and your core through all of those changes is really difficult, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it's something we just kind of help each other with and, uh, it's, um, it's really fun. We've all just gotten to be really good friends over the, over that period of time. That's and, awesome. How did that start? Just a probably you. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Um, one of my harebrained ideas, but I think I was. I think it started with a guy named Greg Owsley. I don't know if you know Greg. He has a consulting firm called the Storied Brand now, but he was the CMO at New Belgium for years and years huh. when I was a had the same role at Costa. And so he mm -hmm. and I, we met when we were uh, bunking together um, on the Ruby River up in Montana on a Trout Unlimited deal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we started talking, you know, and just we're like, wow, you're like, you know, my brother from another mother kind of deal. Yeah. And all the issues that he was facing and trying to build New Belgium into that kind of brand that I was facing with Costa just really gelled. And I'm like, wow, man, I bet there's some other people out there like us. What, what if we all got together and had this kind of session, you know, once a year and he's like, I'm game. Yeah. And, uh, then we pulled in a guy named Dave Menifee, who at the time was working with Ukanuba dog food <laughs> and a P and G brand. Yeah. Uh, but super authentic. I mean, they had like 40 different formulas for different, uh, types of dogs and types of uh, training for dogs. And, hmm. you know, so it was more working dog kind of brand, but, you know, they worked really closely with the community of trainers and so forth to build that brand. So anyway, uh, I think the three of us probably started it. And then we pulled in Rich from Sims um, and uh, a couple more guys. And yeah, it's um, yeah. it's been really fun. That's really cool. <laughs> it's amazing how those and We things... call it seam because when you're fishing a river and you've got the fast water and the slow water, and then there's a seam that's really the sweet spot where the fish are. Yeah. And it was sort of an analogy for, you know, how our businesses are. There's really fast water and you can get seduced by that and try to hop in and, but you're going to miss a lot of the fish. And then there's slow water that's kind yeah. of dead. So finding that medium, you know, there's sort of that in-between spot. That's the sweet spot. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're on the seam, right, you're, you're still moving, still moving. You're not going in circles, but you're, you're less likely to crash. Right. I mean, yeah. You're more thoughtful, you know? <laughs> yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. So 
And um, you mentioned briefly before we, we started that you are still fishing the Merkin, right? Yep, every year. That's awesome. Yeah, I missed one year because I had something wrong with my eye and I couldn't see. And I wanted to fish it anyway, but uh, just one-eyed. But the, yeah. <laughs> my doctor said no. So yeah. uh, luckily, they let me back in the next year. So That's that's awesome. I, uh, I miss... I miss that. I mean, I was, you know, we, we brought up Willie Benson and thinking about that. I mean, it was, um, that's part of the coolest thing about doing this is I, I do a bunch of research beforehand and I, and then I get to think and I think quietly. And, um, I was like, how did I, how did I meet you? You know? And, and I know we don't know each other that well, but there's always been, I've always had a connection towards you in the sense of like, you know, I mean, it's, you run into someone and you can tell, right. In the first 15 seconds, for, at least I usually can like that person, you know, we, we think a little bit of a like, and I was thinking, how did we meet? And it was definitely Vandergrift and Willie. Um, and when I opted out of, you know, I just told Willie, I said, Hey man, I'm, I, uh, my kids are young and I need, I need, I need these years, but in, in doing some research, on you, I was like, I gotta figure out a way to get back in the mix because I don't. I miss the fishing, obviously. You always miss fishing. You can't do that. You have a fond memory of, but it's more so what's come out of those things, the people. Um, and I heard you talking about, you know, we'll get into that in a second here. But when when you were launching Bahio, you you went down there, and was that, I mean, a result of fishing in the tournaments, or was that? Just growing up, I mean, you know, watching the evolution of the tournaments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I do remember the first time that we met, and obviously I knew who you were, and, you know, you were sort of this legend, you know, that <laughs> I, I had never met, and everybody just had the ultimate respect for Mike Dolls, you know. Well, that's and, very uh, nice. I'm not just saying that because I'm sitting here, but it was, it was true. So I knew your name, and then I saw you at the party before – uh, the Merkin, and you were wearing a, a green T-shirt that was one that we had made called, and the T-shirt said the Laughing Irapaima Bar. Yeah. And it was the bar down at Rewa in Guyana <laughs> exactly. that we had created in the little village. And then we made these T-shirts, the Laughing Irapaima. And I was like, how in the world does this dude have our T-shirt? I don't know who he is. And I kind of know everybody that was affiliated with it. And you said, I'm Mike Dawes. I'm like, oh, shit, Mike Dawes has got my T-shirt on. That is awesome. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because in, Willie, um, that day, it's an incredible memory, by the way, that that day, um, Willie was like, I've got a secret weapon. And he's like, do you do you know Al? And I was like, you know, same thing. I know, I know who Al is. He's a legend. Um, and that's when you had created this silver sunrise lens and remember putting those on and was like, wow. And, and I mean, my, my involvement in Costa was the three of you. Um, and that was, um, I don't know. It, and, and on that note, um, while I was reflecting last night, it's, you know, change has been a big thing in my life as of, as of recent. And, and I took a snapshot of in my brain, like, you know, they're there at that moment, right? You're at Costa, Vander Vandergriff's looping me into Costa, and I was with Worldcast, and then here we are today, right? 
<laughs> I mean, change is, it's an amazing thing. And even more amazing is, you know, the lessons learned from people's resistance to change for me, but, um, it's, it's very, it's very cool. And, you know, what I found in doing that research last night was like the amount of similarities that we do have, which I can't wait to explore right now. And one thing that just got me super jacked, uh, last night and was this idea, uh, and I don't know if it still has legs or not, but the, this trails, um, idea that, and I'll, I'll let you describe it, but I just read about it and listened to a little bit of about it. And can you, uh, can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, we're calling it, it's an app that we're, that we've created. And oh, wow. It, is it out there? It, it will be, um, I think we're going to launch it in a couple weeks, you know, we've said that before and then had to change some stuff, but I think sure. it, this time it's really, <laughs> really ready to launch in a couple of weeks. Um, but you know, the, the vision of it was based on the fact that, you know, as, as I've worked with all these fishing companies, you know, a lot of them are adventure travel, fly fishing companies, and it's, it's almost like an exclusive club. You know, a lot of folks might not agree with that, but it, just from a financial standpoint, it is. If you want to go down to a lodge in Bahamas or Belize or wherever, it's several grand a week. Oh, yeah. And you've got to pay a guide on top of that. And you've got to get down there. You've got to pay, buy all this really nice equipment to do it. So by its very nature, it is for um, really rich white people. Yeah. And if you ask any of the guides down there, any of the lodges, who's your clientele? It's rich white dudes. Yeah. And most of them are old. So I I really believe that, you know, for a lot of reasons, for the future of the sport is one, um, but also just for the future of our youth, that we need to make it as easy as possible for young people to get exposed to these experiences and these people and the adventure and, you know, the, the, the thing that that does to help build interesting characters mm -hmm. um, and build character within people, we got to make that accessible. And so the, what the trail is, and it's big vision, I guess. Um, I usually, you know, step into stuff that I'm totally unprepared for and <laughs> is way bigger than <laughs> is achievable. But yeah, with the help of a lot of people, sometimes it gets done. But the idea is to have a series of trails eventually all over the world where um, a kid can come in, you know, scrape up the money for a plane ticket, uh, fly in and do DIY fishing with the help of some locals and really get um, immersed in not only the fishing, but the cultures and the communities that are there and meet some of the local people not in an artificial sense, but in kind of a real sense, mm -hmm. go over to their house, stay at their house, have dinner with them, um, uh, at, at a minimum, stay in cheap hotels, camp, get cheap food, but just have sort of an adventure experience uh, around fishing. And so the first one that we've created is in the Yucatan Peninsula. And we spent a lot of time down there, and uh, that will be the, the first trail that we feature in the app. So the app is uh, grand in vision and starts out with one trail on it. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's it's uh, that's just 
I don't know. It was amazing because last night I was writing down all these questions and then I stumbled upon that. And all of a sudden I was like, I, I, you know, that that's how I started permit fishing. Really? Yeah. A hundred percent in the Yucatan by myself with a friend on a very minimal budget. Yeah. And my, my trail at that point in time was an email from Brian O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. That was like three sentences. <laughs> But I mean, what, what an amazing, um, yeah. What, what an amazing, yeah. And have you, have you looked into the railroad that they're building down there? Yeah, absolutely. It's supposed to be finished by the end of this year. I, I'm a little skeptical of that. Yeah, I'm extremely skeptical. <laughs> but the railroad is perfect because that, you know, you can hop on the train and it goes around, you know, the yeah. coast of the Yucatan and then just hop off, you know, hitchhike to a local town, fish hop back on the train and keep rolling. You don't have to rent a car or anything like that. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know. Um, you've got the Appalachian trail sure. in the Carolinas and that trail is, is, you know, it's become like a community of people yeah. who are trail hikers and they help each other. They publish things about it, you know, things they've discovered that are cool uh, things not to do, things to do, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and there's examples of those kind of trails all over the place. And then it's like, there's also, in Europe, it was used to be sort of a rite of passage that you get a URL pass and a backpack for your graduation present yep. and a plane ticket, and then you hit the youth hostels of Europe yeah. and meet kids from all over the world who, who come there and do the same thing. And it used to be pretty uh, sketchy, you know? I mean, it, it wasn't... It was before you had social media and, and, you know, online apps and stuff like that. So you, you really had to kind of figure out like who you are and, you know, work your way through some difficult situations and reach out of your comfort zone, meet people and all of that. Um, and so that's, I think that's a big part of the trail concept. Um, in addition, you know, our brand is, you know, I really wanted this thing to focus on helping the saltwater flats and mm-hmm. they've got a lot of issues and really the, the way that we do it is bringing people in to work with the local folks to help. Yeah. So this is also around the trail. The trail becomes like a skeleton and an infrastructure. And then we hang conservation projects along the trail mm-hmm. and then the young people coming in will have a chance to work on those projects. They can go out and plant a coral, they can plant a mangrove, yeah. You know, they can clean up a beach, clean up sargassum, beach trash, yeah. stuff like that. And in the process, work with the local people, meet the local people. And you think about what a rich experience that is. It'll be a life-changing experience for these kids. And, you know, it may they may decide, hmm, I don't want to be a lawyer like my mom and dad want me to be just because my dad's one. I want to be a fishing guide or I want to, I want to travel or I want to do something else that yeah. I really believe in and I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I want to leave it, lead an interesting life. I don't want to put off interesting until retirement. I want to do it my whole life. Yeah. And if we can ex- inspire just a little bit of that, man, I think our planet's got a better chance. Um, 100%. more people like that. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Cause I was literally, on a beach, you know, back, tw- we're talking 24 years ago, yeah. I went down there to catch my first permit, told my now wife, like, I'm, I am not coming back till this is done. And, um, <laughs> <Might> be years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, um, you know, 
was on a budget. So I, I was cleaning beaches to get some boat access and get dropped off. And I don't know, it's it, the, the other thing that's very interesting to me is on that note, you know, the role, like you mentioned, of social media in that, in the sense that I'm sure, right, you remember a point in time when a lot of people, you know, whether it was going to Europe and grabbing the, you know, Euro rail pass, or for me, it was, I just decided to check out of the real world and go to Southeast Asia for a couple months and those lessons. But social media, I, I just don't hear about those things happening as much anymore. And I do wonder if that's because people have that at their fingertips to to scroll through and talk like they've been there, but they've never smelled it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder about that. Do you feel like that what you did and picking up and just going to Southeast Asia, that that's not happening as much anymore? Um, or I, it's just we're not hearing about it? Or what's I, your view I do. That? Yeah. And, and it's hard, right? Because the pandemic... I mean, that's a whole different curveball, but I haven't heard, um, you know, it seems like most of it these days is through some sort of structure and maybe that's what, you know, your, your, your app, that's what's needed. Right. I mean, cause I, I haven't talked to anybody in years. that's just like packed up and, you know, unless they're, they're the coolest people in the world from New Zealand who just don't have a plan. Right. <laughs> they just yeah. go, they just go everywhere. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I, that's my sense as well. You know that the I don't know the Gen X Gen Y generations have in a sense lost their sense of adventure, and maybe it's you know, traces back to like the helicopter parents and organized sports. I know my kids um, had di very different childhoods than I had. You know, we would we would be in the creek all day long with our dog and just going miles, just all, all these like adventures that were in our brains, you yeah. know, like, what are we going to discover? And, yeah. and, you know, inspired by Tarzan movies and Westerns and all that kind of stuff. And mom would be like, well, be home by five 30 for dinner. And yeah. then there'd be some bell or some whistle <laughs> we had a, that we would, had a bell too. yeah, call us home. <laughs> and, um, you know, the dogs didn't have to have leashes or anything like that. They were running wild and, um, you know, I think about just how that fueled this sense of adventure and, and fed it and yeah. made it bigger. And now like my kids, boy, you had, you have organized baseball. I mean, we used to get, we just go to the local park and have pickup games with people we didn't even know. And, yeah. and same with football and basketball and all those things. Now it's like so organized. The uniforms are perfect. The fields are perfect. The fields are like major league baseball fields now. Um, and the same for kind of like their whole life for everything. Yeah. And so they, I think a lot of them have never had to explore, you know, it's all been handed to them. They never had to create. And that's a blanket statement. I know, but just as a trend. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's like, if you don't, if you're not put in that position, not put in that situation, then then what happens, you know, how do you really know who you are and what you're, you're all about? Um, yeah. and, uh, I mean, we, I, you know, I hate bullying and all that stuff, but we didn't, we didn't have like rules against bullying like they do in schools now. Yeah. And I'm not saying those are bad. We need to watch out for bullies beating up on kids, but you know, sometimes bullies got punched in the nose Sure, and 
that was a big learning experience. Yeah. And, uh, so, so I don't know. I, I, you know, we can't, we can't save the world. We can't save all the young people, but just being, you know, providing some options where we are introducing that into people, you know, young people's lives yeah. a little bit more and pushing on that. Yeah. And then yeah. I think that's the part that got me so jacked up about it is that, you know, and reflecting on it, it is like, I do feel like what we were just talking about, that's disappeared. Like I, I really haven't run into anybody who's like, I've got a, you know, I've got a thousand dollars, a backpack and I'm going like, I haven't heard that in forever. Yeah. Um, when I, when I reflect upon the several times that I did do that, it was, it was the awkward moments where I had to rely on myself that built the character, right? Like, and forged a confidence um, moving forward that, you know, now what I do hear a lot of is like, well, I just want to come with you. And it's like, well, <laughs> I've worked, I've worked right. my ass off to be able to go on these things. But um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And did, did that idea, was that spawned out of kind of you know the launch of Bahio when you guys I know you did a because Sam Flea got in touch with me and uh, another thing we have in you know common really good friend of ours and he said you were you were doing a tour around Mexico and then I I thought is that is that what spawned this or was it something you've been thinking about for a while yeah I think I've been thinking about it for a while but maybe in a little bit different form and mm -hmm. so it, the original uh, you know, brand concept for Bahio, um, you know, you, you just sort of write down everything that you want to do and try to piece it all together. So it's a coherent whole. And so one of the big parts of the mission were, was around youth. Cause I've been working with, you know, college kids and high school kids for years and years. And, you know, I've got three boys and Marguerite's got two girls. So we get firsthand feedback yeah. <laughs> on, on everything. But uh, so the original concept was, was to have a camp. And so it'd be various camps around. Mm -hmm. um, and then that just sort of evolved into, you know, a camp is kind of sedentary. And it also involves a lot of like, you got to have either rent something or build something. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, you know, the, the capital investment is big from a money standpoint, but just also it sort of locks you into a location. So then the idea of a trail, uh, I don't know, popped, popped in our minds and, and it was kind of like, well, this is a lot more flexible and, you know, we can build a lot more of these things than we could build camps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's just more fluid and just kind of more fun and kind of cooler. And yeah. trails are all about exploring and, and that's what, that's what stokes me is the exploration piece of it. Yeah. So it just kind of evolved that. And then it was like, well, look, we can, we can do our, our youth mission. We can do our, you know, renew the saltwater flats mission all within the context of trail. And so ultimately when we get this company, um, a little more stable and where we want it to be, <laughs> sure. you know, it's way if that ever happens. Um, I mean, I want my full-time job to just be traveling the world, building trails Yeah, for, that's for young people. That's and amazing. That'll be so much fun and it, it'll be amazing. So that, that drives me quite a bit. It's yeah. What a, uh, what a pioneering vision, to be honest. I mean, that's cause, cause really what it is, is, is it's 
how do you, how do you bring what we're talking about that's been lost into our current world, right? Because right. and that's technology. I mean, mm-hmm. part of it, incorporating that, and yeah, it's um, yeah, it's I don't know. It, it just got me super jacked last night when I when I like I was like I said I had other things, and we'll get there. But I was like, whoa, this is. I mean, I yeah. did that on my own, mm-hmm. um, but. Well, and the other thing too, not to get like too grandiose about it, but I think it's, it's definitely attainable is, you know, there's a lot of issues that happen that need to be addressed. And, you know, most of them are driven by, you know, baby boom generation and um, people with a lot of money and governments with a lot of ambition and greed. And it leads to degradation of our habitat and, you know, the natural world. And there needs to be a pushback to that. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at, you know, what happened in, you know, Africa and what's happened in in Europe, young people can get together with social media as a tool and can change the freaking world. Yeah. And so if you think about if, um, you know, let's look 10 years from now and we have a system of trails and we have communities of trail goers from different countries around the world, something happens on that trail that we don't like and that's harmful to that trail. We rally the troops and they start making some noise on social media and lobbying governments and they'll change it. They'll fix it. So we're going to build an army of young people who are fighting, you know, to protect the natural world that we've got out there. Yeah. That's uh it's powerful. There's no doubt. I, I struggle with the whole, and maybe it's just right because I grew up, we grew up differently. Um, but it was funny the other night around a campfire, I was saying to someone, "This will why why are why are you taking this new, you know?" I said, "Well, I mean, to be honest, it's for me, it's very fulfilling to create opportunity. Um, additionally." I feel like we've lost the sense of tribe and creating a cool culture over time provides that tribe. Um, and in what you're talking about, that's a different tribe, right? Where now we're utilizing and, and they can swing the back, the bat harder than, you know, you ever could. But I, I do go back and forth. I mean, one comment that definitely like shocked the really cool guy that I was talking to around the fire. I was, I was like, no one ever talks about why, you know, in the Yucatan, they don't have a babysitter. I mean, they don't, there's no such thing. And like, I can't socialize around here because we can't find a babysitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. It's, it's a fascinating um, topic, but it's, it's really cool because what, what you're trying to do is, is blend the two and it's, it's pioneering. It's, I, I can't wait to see how it, how it plays out. Well, we may be calling on you to be a consultant yeah. on DIY fishing. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of different models for, you know, how society works and how families work. And we've adopted this model in the last, you know, whatever, 100 years, 200 years, where we all have our house, we all have our family, we all have our stuff within that. And, we're sort of insulated from everybody else. You know, there's, there's not as much of a sense of community um, 
in terms of how we live our daily lives. And we go out and we look for community and things like fishing or things like cycling or, you know, and to find groups of like-minded people. But in our daily lives, there's not nearly as much community as, as there could be. And, um, you know, it's not that we all need to live on communes and, and, you know, raise, raise kids together in some utopian sort of way. Sure. But I, I do think we can learn from other cultures who seem to have gotten it right more so than us. Yeah. And not think that we've got all the answers here in the United States and that, you know, this is the only way to do things and it is the right way and not the wrong way. And I think getting out and traveling and really emerging, immersing yourself uh, in local cultures opens your eyes up to, hey, maybe there are different ways to do it and they're totally valid. Yeah. And not having to have babysitters and just have the village help raise your kid is pretty cool. If, yeah. If you're a parent. You know? Yeah, it's really cool. And yeah. it's, I mean, yeah. And and it's different, different areas, you know, lend a different, I mean, my, my daughter, you know, just, just, she's eight going on 21 and, you know, she's, she's up before, you know, getting ready on her own, which is quite the contradiction to my son. But they, um, the other morning, I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, cause the bus goes this way. And, um, she's like, well, you know, we have, we have some neighbors that, that moved in like a year ago. And so he, one of the kids first time to kindergarten, she's like, I just really want to be there for him. And I was like, that is, must be doing something, something right. That's impressive, man. You That's know? awesome. Yeah. It was really, uh, I don't know. It's heartwarming, but yeah. I, um, before we, before we dive deep into the kind of the wild ride of the Bahio start. Um, I have a hunch and it could be, could be wrong, but did, um, how long before you launched Bahio were you thinking about the idea? Uh, probably a pretty long time. You know, when I left Costa, I don't even remember what year that was, but maybe like 16 or 17, I think the end of 16, maybe, mm-hmm. um, you know, I left because I felt like when I got sold to this giant company that they weren't going to let me continue to do things the way that I had done it. You know, it was just a different model. Mm-hmm. And um, so at that point, I was like, well, my, you know, my philosophy, I guess, that I developed and just the way that I felt like things needed to be done, it was much more of a less of marketing and more of a whole company strategy and vision. So as a brand, everything needs to work together towards a single purpose. And with Costa, I was able to, from my seat, um, influence everything to where that was, it wasn't perfect. Um, we did have a lot of internal squabbles and whatnot, Yeah, but I think from the outside, it felt like one brand that had one mission and that all parts of it were working towards that that one mission. And um, so corporations don't, big corporations don't really work that way. You know, it's, it's all about efficiencies and it's about purely about commerce and not about cause. Uh, so when I left, I was searching for, okay, what's the next place where I can implement this model and implement 
my vision. And, and so when I talked to Casey at Sims, he'd kind of been on me to come join them for a while. And I you know, turned him down quite a bit and quite a few times. But um, I said, all right. He's like, I want you to build Sims into what Coast is or has been. And I'm like, cool. So what I can do is I can come in and I can implement sort of that whole company strategy and I can really get us much more into, um, you know, everybody participating in a, in a cause and put our cause first. Got in there to do that and it, it just didn't work because this was his company that he's built over a long period of time. He was ready to get out. He uh, had private equity involved and they typically are going to buy and flip. And so the vibe wasn't to build something as a company that was going to have a positive impact on the world and be a really interesting and cool thing. It was let's sell some shit and flip it and get out. Right. So that just wasn't a fit. You know, that wasn't a fit for me. That wasn't going to work. And so then I started consulting like, well, maybe I could, you know, maybe the Costa experience was my one shot in my life. Right. And so I did that. Um, pretty close to how I would want it to be done. Um, and so maybe now I just teach other brands how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I did some consulting and, um, you know, Simon and those guys at Orvis are awesome. I love, love those guys and had yeah. some great experience, uh, trying to help them, but it was pretty well established, you know, and, and the trajectory somewhat fixed, although I know he's trying to change it. And, um, you know, the same for, for all the other brands, um, they were started by and owned by other people. And, and so I could try to influence them to do things the way I wanted it to be done, or I thought they should be done. But in the end, it's their, their deal, and yeah. not mine. And then, um, you know, same, same thing happened. I was a glutton for punishment. I went, went to work for a little company called a hook. And is that, is that how it's pronounced? Hook. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so it got us back to the East coast, got us back to the ocean in Charleston and we love Charleston and, um, but another private equity deal. And that was a, a you know, somewhat of a disaster. Yeah. So at that point, <laughs> at the point, at that point, at the end of 19, I was like, you know, Marguerite and I talked and I was like, babe, look, everybody knows that what we did at Costa was amazing. And it was, it was just fulfilling and effective on all fronts. And, We've been searching for that same type of experience at all these different places, and it's just not there. So we had this realization that if we really want to have things the way that we think they should be and that it's good and positive and all of that, we're just going to have to start our own company. Yeah. And, you know, we're sitting there, and after all those, you know, the big loop that we took, you know, from Florida to Montana back to Charleston— um, it pretty much depleted all of our resources. You know, we didn't have any money um, yeah. at that point. And, um, so she was like, well, can't you just take a CEO job somewhere and make some money? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, it was like, well, I guess I could, but babe, I mean, I've got to, if I'm, if I'm going to be effective, my soul has got to be engaged. I've got it. That's what fuels my energy is creativity and purpose and all that kind of stuff. It's a curse. It's a curse, but I can't detach myself. And a blessing, right? I mean, and a, I think it's a blessing, <clears throat> you know, for me it is, but 
it'd be a lot easier if that wasn't the case. Sure. But it is. I've got to be in hook, line, and sinker, um, or it's not going to work. So any, anyway, long story short, that's kind of what got us uh, to the point of saying we got to do our own thing. Yeah, and it sounds like, um, you know, I don't know any of the inner workings, what was happening at Costa at that time, but it sounds like you were able to tell the story, right? Yeah. And then when you're consulting, I mean, I did a little bit of that in, in you know, very similar time frame, right? I mean, I had almost two years where I was just meandering, same exact thing, right? I, <laughs> the funds were going, I mean, consulting probably, you know, wasn't going to do it. Um, just international travel, that was just going to pull me away from the kids. But um, someone said to me at one point, they're like, you're, you know, we're talking about some opportunity and it was like, you're pretty much unhirable. Exactly. <laughs> That's where I was. I was unhirable. Exactly. Absolutely unhirable. <laughs> and I, and at, at first I took it as like, a, wow, like that's, that's, you know, I don't know if that's like, it's not a compliment necessarily, but maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. Casey Sheehan, who came in as CEO, CEO of Sims. Um, and, uh, I was hopeful we were going to do great things together, but that didn't happen. Um, but you know, it's in our parting meeting. He's like, Al, you're just too big for this place. We can't afford you. We can't afford to give you the money you need to do what you need to do. Uh, we're just trying to right the ship right now. Um, so you need to be like running brand for Patagonia. And yeah. So, so he called, you know, Yvonne and Rose and, and it's like, Hey, you need to bring Al in to run Patagonia. But then I, and they've, you know, a bunch of those people flew up and we talked and all that kind of thing. But um, then they were like, oh, this is Yvonne's vision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got your own, you know, and yeah. they didn't tell me to go start my own company. But read between the lines is basically what they were saying. Yeah, but what's really cool about that, right, is without bouncing around and exploring those things, you know, it's not easy. Um but the learning curve is steep. I mean, mm-hmm. learn, you know, it, it sounds like that's what, what happened. Um, Casey, actually, I've always, another, I've always heard Casey's name, Sheehan, and he's been coming into the shop recently and the other day, um, getting to know him a little bit. And I had some, I was like, this place is great. We've, you know, new shop, we, we've redone it. And, but, um, I was like, we need some soul in here. So I contacted a buddy in South Africa and got some, some flies in and Kate, I watched him go around the shop a couple of times and then he just stopped at this bucktail and was like, where is this from? And I was like, all right, we're getting a little bit of soul in here. It's been Perfect. cool. That's awesome. Um, and so the other thing that's been, you know, in doing a little research on this, which is another one that was wildly cool, the, the more I thought about it was um, the name. So Bahio and was there, was there a risk of, bastardization of the name that you were aware of or was it that you were so um i mean i know how passionate you are about the flats so was it just like no that's that's a cool name we're sticking with it or was did that ever come up in the in the pre-launch yeah so i mean i i think way too much Um, yeah so (laughs) which is a good thing so the the original name was was Panga, okay, and um, so that's that's the, actually the name we were pretty sure we were going to go with, and Panga we loved it because 
number one, a panga is a humble craft. And, you know, it's the boat that's used in most of the places we love to go travel and explore. Um, it, you know, panga has different, there's a lot of different pangas. There's the little fish that's a bait fish that's sort of nothing fancy, nothing like glamorous. It's just a little bait fish that feeds a lot of people in the world. And then there's the machete. I don't know about, so that's an actual. It's an actual little fish, like huh. a, a bait fish, but it's a little bigger than a bait fish because people eat them. Gotcha. And and they're at different spots around the world. They're called that. They could be different species, but okay. So it's like know, it's kind of like a bait fish. Cool. Yeah. And then there's the machete, which is also called panga, in a lot of places. And you think about a machete as just the most simple, beautifully crafted tool that can do so many different things. I mean, you see somebody who knows how to use machete, and they can chop a trail in the jungle. They can. Build a house. Build a house. I mean, <laughs> exactly. they can do everything. Yeah. You know? And and so that, and then the panga, the boat, is, I mean, it, it's really revolutionized the economies of so many of these places because they can use it as a scuba diving. They can use it as a, you know, commercial, um, you know, fishing type of vessel. They can use it, um, you know, to guide for flats. They can go offshore, inshore, and it's a simple design. It's very inexpensive. And, uh, so, so we just loved it. We knew that anytime Marguerite and I were sitting in a panga, we were in a good spot. Yeah. We're, we were 100%. off for an adventure doing stuff that we totally love to do. So, you know, we looked at our company and our brand in that same way and had the same function as those other, um, you know, products or fish or whatever. And, uh, so it seemed like a perfect fit, but then the more we thought about it, um, we're like, you know, our, one of my philosophies, I guess, and it comes from storytelling and, uh, you know, my friend Bob McKee, who's sort of like the grandfather of storytelling for Hollywood and written books about how to tell a story. And <laughs> he's a scholar. I mean, he is, he knows so much about story. He does these three day seminars about how to tell a story that are eight, nine hours long. And this dude is 75 years old <laughs> and he gets up on stage with no notes and quotes two, 300 films over the history and John Cleese. And, you know, you name the, you know, the, the writers, Steven Spielberg, uh, the toy story guys, they <laughs> all come to him when they're having trouble with their story. Right. And that's very so I just cool. caught him up one day. I'm like, Hey man, could you come teach my team how to tell stories? And so he came down, spent a day with us, very expensive day. And, <laughs> and then I've been to his seminar three times. And, huh. um, but he's, he's just phenomenal. Uh, his brain is like huge. Yeah. And, and, and he's, he's just a powerful human. Um, in his presence, you're just like, whoa, this guy's powerful. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, so one of the one of the tenets of telling a great story is that you have a world that you want to invite people into mm -hmm. that they've never been to before probably and at, at least not this version of it and then you want to take them on a wild ride in that in that place right you want to take them through um you know the ups and downs the turning points the conflict all of that uh, within this world. And so you think about Star Wars, 
Sure. They created a whole world. It had its rules. It had its characters, things that, you know, we, we would think actually exist, but don't, but there's like, you know, Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. You're like, okay, well let's beam me up. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> exactly. not possible, but just created in this world. So anyway, um, that's, that's the deep thinking part of it. I said, you know what? Panga is a tool that's used to explore the world, but I'd like for our brand to have the name of the world. So yeah. what is the name? We could call it flats. And we went through all these names. None of them were any good. And then I just got on, you know, started Googling stuff. And this was in the pandemic when we had nothing else to do. Yeah. Just think, right. And, um, found this world, Bahio. I'm like, Hmm, this sounds, it's like a cool sounding name. It's really different. I don't think anybody's ever heard of it before. And, um, it, I think it means what we want it to mean. It describes that world of the shallows and the flats and, and all that. So we caught our, our friend, uh, Kali, who, who lives in Mexico. And uh, like, Kali, uh, here's what we're doing. And is this word the right word? You know, does this fit? And she goes, absolutely. This is exactly what you want it to mean. It's an old Mexican word. We don't use it very much anymore. But it, we love this word. We love what it means, what it stands for. So it's perfect. Yeah. And, and then we were like, okay, every redneck in America is going to totally screw up the pronunciation. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but, but screw it. We're going to go, go yeah. with it and we'll teach them how to say it. Yeah. So J's or H's in, in uh, Spanish. So that, that makes it kind of easy. But yeah, that's, that's how we came up with the name. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I get the, you know, we're, we're selling your product and we, <laughs> I get to hear it, right? Like, right. Baggio, Baggio, you know, all, all of the different ones. But so before, before you, you actually put the name on it, this whole idea, I mean, basically again, it, it seems to me like it's a well thought out circle of life type thing. Right. I mean, not only from the, from the idea of, you know, all the big fish got to be small somewhere. Right. Um, to everybody's got to go to the shallows at some point. Right. And, and then obviously it's your passion. So, I mean, was that, was that all thought out ahead of time or did like you, you put the label on and then you kept getting like, you know, more, more fruits of, of it, putting the name on it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of both, you mm -hmm. know, we, uh, you know, we started to launch the product in early, uh, early 20s, started to launch the company. And, you know, we didn't have any money. So we had to go out and ask people for money, which everybody hates doing. And I'd never done before, but we warmed to it and it, it mm -hmm. was kind of fun and challenging. But, um, so we went out and had a lot of the money raised and then COVID hit. And so everybody put their checkbooks away and said, let's wait and see how this thing plays out. So from probably like February of 20, all the way to, you know, for the next three or four months, um, there was no money available. And so I'm like, well, let's just make the, make the most of this. So I had a little office upstairs in our house in Charleston. It was on like the third floor, you know, all the Charleston houses are super tall. And, um, it was cool because we'd open the windows in the spring and the leaves were rustling outside and the cool breezes coming through and it was just like this little oasis. And I, and I would go up there and just work and think all day. And I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to forget about any constraints that 
and that will block my idea path. And I'm just going to throw up on, I got all these boards and cut out pictures, print stuff from the internet. And I'm just going to create the whole thing right here on paper. <laughs> and so that's what we did. And every, every night, literally, I would work on it for six or eight hours and come down and we had a TV, I'd get my computer and put it up on the TV. I'm like, all right, babe, um, let's sit down and see where we're at today. Yeah. And we'd walk through it and, um, you know, Marguerite would be like, no, not on this, not on that. Nope. Nope. Go back. So the next day I'd go back up, change all this other stuff, come down. It was just a process, you know, day mm -hmm. in and day out until we had the full vision on paper. And we, we even like. I'm not a sunglass designer from like being able to draw this stuff, mm -hmm. but I would just like pull pictures off the internet. And sure. so, um, it all looked like a finished thing. And when, when COVID started to subside and people started looking at investing again, that brand book is what sold it to everybody. <laughs> and they would just read through it and it would walk through the vision. It would show exactly how it's going to get implemented. And they, they were like, I get it. And yeah, and let's do it. And that went along with sort of an executive summary that talked about the market opportunity and more of the business type of stuff. And um, between those two documents, we would send it out to people and they'd be like, let's talk. You know? Yeah. So, but, you know, that's, I would say a huge percentage of that actually got implemented, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's weird. Once you put it down and the vision is down, you kind of say, well, maybe this isn't that hard to like do. So let's just, let's just do it. But as you know, I was, I studied sculpture in college. I was actually a sculpture major. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I think about things is kind of have this big vision in my head and it's not always fully formed. And I try to stay really open to new things so it can evolve but there'll be a person floating around out here and I'm like, wow, that person is really cool. I bet they could bring a lot to it. And I might pull them in and plug them in. Mm -hmm. It might be like a program or, you know, something happening, a cause or something. I'm like, wow, that's really inspiring. That's cool. Let me pull that in. And so you're constantly pulling in pieces that are going to evolve and improve, you know, the overall vision. And, and then it's, it's a fluid thing. It's yeah. not static. And so it's constantly changing, constantly moving. And in your mind, you want to nail it down. You want to say, this is it. Yeah. And this is it forever. Cause then everything gets simpler and less stressful. But if you can stay open and live with ambiguity forever, um, then things will stay fresh, I think. And you're not going to miss out on opportunities that could have made it better because you're already set. Sure. Um, and it drives everybody crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I swear, I think it's important. Does it drive you crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have an Good. internal battle say, with myself you, you, all the time. You must have something that I don't have <laughs> because, well, that's, um, that's very well put because it's, uh, at least for me and, sounds like you as well it, it's not an easy place to reside no no i mean it's you learn it i learned it um to have that aspiration from studying art 
and studying artists. And um, if you think about actors or mu musicians, actors are less artists than the people who write the screenplay or, or whatnot. But still, uh, everybody wants to get pigeonholed or the public wants to pigeonhole people and artists and into doing a certain thing. And if, you know, they, they have a type of song, you know, a type of music that's making a lot of money, then what the record label wants you to do is just keep making the same record over and over and over again. Yep. And the artist needs to keep growing. Yep. And sometimes the artist will grow away from that original audience. And the audience is like, I don't just, I, I want you to do the old stuff. I want you to play the old stuff. Um, but the artist has to keep moving, has to keep growing if it wants to keep discovering and keep exploring and, and doing new things. Yeah. And the world we live in, right. They don't want to, they don't want to talk about the fact that if you want to grow, you're going to fail. Exactly. <laughs> it's risky. So it it's, is risky. There's risk associated. And look, interesting people, interesting, you know, companies, interesting lives are only interesting because there's been failure. There's been hardship. There's been conflict, you know, Bob will tell you, you know, our, our story guy, that a story is not interesting without conflict. Mm -hmm. And when I see so many of these films uh, in, in our industry and in fly fishing, that's the one thing that is not fully understood, that the, there's beautiful cinematography. And if you think about from the early days to now, uh, the camera equipment's gotten better. The ability to shoot stuff has gotten better. And you know, the shots of the fish coming up and taking the fly are just yeah. like, oh my God. But where's the conflict? You know, where, what, who's the antagonist in this whole picture? Yeah. Uh, it, it can't just be this beautiful, I go to this place and yeah, maybe I have to chop through some stuff or maybe it rains or whatever. But, you know, what's the, what's the core story of the protagonist with this quest that's worthy and that we want him to succeed on or her to succeed on? And who's the antagonist who's wanting to thwart it, who's yeah. wanting to work against it, you know? Um, so I do think that when you uh, reduce risk, you reduce conflict and you reduce the ability to build character within people and to build interest within brands. And so the whole world gets super vanilla and super plain. Yeah. And that's the impact of ownership structure. That's the impact of these private equity people. And I got plenty of friends in that world. Um, they'll <laughs> tell you the same thing, but, uh, you know, either a strategic who has a whole bunch of brands, uh, or a private equity group or whatever, they want to minimize risk as much as possible. Yeah. Right. And so they want to take all the fun out, you know, all yeah. the adventure out. And if you look at all the brands in the fly fishing industry and try to find the ones that are not owned by one of those two entities, it is hard to find. Yeah. And so what does that do? You know, what does that do to our industry? I'm going up to the confluence in a couple of days and that's, you know, the new fly fishing show and nobody's coming. We're going just because we believe we got to support this industry. It's very important, but hardly anybody else is coming. The life has been sucked out of that thing. Mm -hmm. it's, and I worry about, I worry about that. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, that's why I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, I good. Mean, so you're going to be there. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We'll see you there. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, but it needed that. Right. I mean, it, it needed a shakeup. Mm -hmm. It was getting, I mean, 
I, one thing I've, you know, real, that I've realized about myself is, you know, if you want to have an impact like you're talking about and you want to, you know, tell a story and create something, you can't hide. And I've been hiding quite a bit. And <laughs> so like, you know, now I got to reinvent it a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Like make, learn from some stuff I've done in the past and, and move forward. But it's, um, I think we got to figure out a way to like, to glorify the struggle, right? Because mm -hmm. it's amazing on social media, even, I mean, I've, I have a crazy relationship with social media. Like I, I almost can't do it, but then I real I'm, I know it's not going anywhere. Right. And I know it's a tool as we talked about, but at the same time, even when you talk about struggle, you need to glorify it with some kind of fish or, you know, someone you're with, or I, I don't know. It's, um, you know, it's a hard thing to glorify, I guess. I mean, well, it's, but you think about it, um, it is every person struggles. Exactly. Life is a struggle. Yeah. And the, the little breaks you get when it's not a struggle are just breaks in yeah. the overall struggle of life. Exactly. And we seem to think that there are these people out there and maybe it's because of what we've seen in media and, you know, movies and TV that just have it all together and don't struggle. And there's this ideal, whether it's leave it to beaver type of life of, you know, you know, the perfect childhood or whatever. But we, th we think that that ideal is out there where there is no struggle and there is just happiness and there's just peace. And we have happiness indexes and all this kind of stuff. But um, maybe it's just because of the life I've led, but I don't believe that's what life's about. I think yeah. life is struggle. And, um, if, if we just sort of admit that, then maybe we're not so reticent to talk about it because I think we've equated struggle with weakness and, um, and it's not, it is the way that you show strength. And, um, so the older I get, and maybe it's just because, you know, I just don't give a shit anymore, but <laughs> I, I try to be really open and transparent. And if I screw up, I'm like, man, I really screwed that up. Yeah. Or if this is really hard, you know, and I'm broke and, you know, don't know where my next thing's coming from. Um, then I don't, I'll talk about it, you know, yeah. whatever, whatever the struggle is, because that's what people are like, you know what? I can relate that because I struggle too. And so, yeah, I, I do, I do think we have, you know, even if we don't glorify it, we at least need to acknowledge it and yeah. accept that it is the greater part of life. Yeah. And it's how you handle it. Right. I mean, right. yesterday was a shitty day for me. Um, and you know, I could have just gone down the shitty rabbit hole and just tried to stay even keeled and just tell myself a couple of times, like, you know, shitty day, but you are lucky. Right. I mean, just, mm -hmm. I don't know. Not to, not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, yeah. but you know, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's something that I feel like is missing. And I, I think that is maybe might've just gotten to my problem with social media. That's the, my inherent problem with it is that, you know, you, you to, to find those fish or to find those cultures or to find those, those incredible places and those magical moments, you, it's just, you're not robotic in how you do that. It's, it comes with struggle. Right. Um, you don't know when you're looking at something like a, a film or TV show or whatever, 
the one thing you don't feel is how freaking cold it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, 100%. or how, how wet your feet are yeah. and that you, before you got that shot, there was, you know, a week of misery. Yeah. Um, and we don't talk about all that stuff as much as we should probably. Yeah. Know? And that's, that's kind of goes back to my question about Bahio, like, with the shallows, it almost has this, I mean, is at least what popped into my mind last night and thinking about it was, you know, I obviously am not in the product world. I sell product and sell experiences, but the, the thing that popped into my head last night is I have a lot of people saying like, well, I, you know, I want to go on this trip, yada, yada, yada. But I, you know, and they're almost like forewarning me. Like I, I just, I've never been, I don't know, like you might not want to go with me. And it's like, no. Like it's the exact opposite. Like that's the magical moment. Like right. everything is an opportunity. Everything is a learning. Everything is. And so that's what I, you know, popped into my mind in thinking about Bahio, Shallows, Youth, the whole, you know, part of it. And was wondering if that was kind of in the playbook, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we are so scared to look stupid. We're so scared to fail that we just don't do it. And taking people out to fly fish for the first time, um, you know, it's okay if you can't cast. It's okay that you don't hook up. You don't have to be like guide level <laughs> exactly. expert to do it, you know? Yeah. And just don't be afraid. Just go out. And, and I think we in the industry have made it a very intimidating industry. And we have all these heroes and all these experts and all this expertise in terms of how to cast. And, and that's what we glorify. We glor we've made it a very hero-focused type of industry. And what we, sh I think, should be focusing more on is, you know, the jester. And yeah. let's screw around. Let's have fun. Yeah. You know, and, and what I've, I'm encouraged about, you know, when we do our trips and our photo shoots and we bring along, you know, Heather from Fish for Change and Jesse from Ishkalak and, and Elon, um, you know, who's a stand-up comedian. He's funny as crap. Yeah. Um, you know, and Piper, who's an artist. And, um, you know, we, one trip we brought the guys, you know, Taylor Meyer from camp and his brother Charlie. And, you know, when we're on those trips, you know, those kids are just, and they're not kids, but... Um, they have a completely different attitude about fishing. I don't think we've talked about a rod and a reel and which one do you have and which one do you have ever. Yeah. Not a single word about the equipment. Yeah. It is about just like partying and having fun. And I mean, when we were in Guanaja, everybody just gelled really well. You know, Taylor was playing his guitar and singing for us all night long. You know, Jesse plays, he was singing you know, Maris was, was playing and singing. Jay was, Jay Johnson was there and he was playing and it was just fun. And then, um, everybody just really bonded as a group. And I think the last night, all those guys took the mattresses from their little cabins and put it all into one room and just all slept at them, <laughs> had awesome. a big slumber party. That's and awesome. that's what it, that's what it's about. It's just about joy and about being together and celebrating like how beautiful and the fish is part of it and sort of the catalyst and for enabling us to have those kinds of things. But it wasn't like 
you know, who's caught the biggest fish, who's caught the most fish, who's got the tightest loop. It was, um, and everybody's real accomplished. You know, it wasn't that they're knuckleheads and everybody's a great angler, but it was just, those aren't why we go. Why yeah. we go is the experience and, and really bonding with, with people and including the local people, which get left out of the equation so much. Like they're just there to be our servants or something. Yeah. And man, that's just, that's just crap. You know, yeah. this is their home that we're in and they have, you know, so many things to offer and they are, they have all the same struggles that we have, you know, with yeah. kids and family and stuff like 100%. that. And, uh, you know, they're the, you know, the relationship you have with them are some of the most rewarding and they will open their world up to you in ways that, um, you know, just so, so enrich the experience. Yeah. And I feel like it's, you know, the industry's job to, you know, not just turn a blind eye to that. Cause that, that whole idea is the, is the problem, right? That right. like, I need to fly somewhere to catch a fish and I need to get out of there quickly after I have the fish that I've got on my phone that I can show at a cocktail party. Like that is the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. And we've created that problem though, because through selling shit. Yep. And so whether it's, you know, flying halfway across the world or selling a product, but, and I feel like that idea of intimidation that you spoke to is, you know, it just, that drives me insane. Um, it's something I've been preaching a lot recently. Like no one, no one can feel intimidated when they walk in here. No one. Um, and if you're on your phone ignoring them and yeah, you can give them space, but like, just, you know, know that you're, you're in the customer service business. We all are. Right. Right. And, um, and the biggest thing I think that we're all a, you know, the industry is, is the expectations have been set wrong. Yep. And, you know, the things you were just speaking about, if those are talked about maybe beforehand or like maybe there's some required reading, I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's something that could break down these wild expectations that, that go along with our industry. I don't know. It's, it's, um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe now's the time, but. Well, I think, I think if we, you know, just sort of lead by example, you know, I know, Jose Wehebe was a good friend and he, you know, he was sort of the king of the saltwater world, but Jose just had, had a philosophy and he had, um, not only just amazing talents in every aspect, but, um, you know, he, as far as conservation went, he's like, look, Al, I'm not going to preach, you know, I'm not going to get, get on there and just talk about that stuff, but. I will, I will do it a certain way that hopefully people will follow and emulate. So I will not take the fish out of the water. I will release them properly. Um, you know, I will, Hey, when, when we travel, you know, we went to Mexico together. He's like, I'm going to stay at a lodge that's owned by indigenous people. I'm not going to stay at one that's not. Sure. Um, but he didn't talk about it. He just did it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And in, in this, in create the creation of Bahio, you know, you talked about art, um, and was that, that was in college, right? Yeah. College. Um, you know, in, in the sculpture, if you will, of Bahio, have you, when you, when you were getting it all on paper, did you ever identify 
when the sculpture would be too big so that you would lose some of the magic or was was that something something you'll figure out if you know if you get there yeah you know i I think if you have some you know some clear values i guess you would you would call them um you know tenants or whatever foundational tenants and you stick to those then it really doesn't matter how big you get Mm -hmm. and um and i think you have to keep the core of whatever it is um you know, pure as, as pure as you can, Sure, uh, but definitely keep it focused on what you're trying to accomplish. And then, you know, as you get, as it sort of radiates out and it gets bigger and the, the outer planets get farther away from the, the sun, um, you know, it can lose some of its, uh, potency, but, um, you know, I, I'm inspired by like Yvonne Chouinard and with Patagonia. That's yeah. a, over a billion dollars company and it's <laughs> huge. But I don't see them losing too much of the mission. Yeah. And um, so usually there's just choices that get made. And all of the things you do are just a series of choices that happen over time. And as long as you're diligent, you know that you're making a choice and then you're, you know, you're sort of conscious about what that choice is and what the implications are and you do the right thing at each choice then i think it all it all is okay yeah that's uh that's very well put so yeah i mean you you you've thought a lot about it i mean yeah for sure i mean it definitely it has to be more challenging i would i would imagine right i mean all of a sudden you get that big choices are a little bit but i mean sounds like you're pretty steadfast on on not compromising on a lot of things which is which is pretty remarkable well, you, you know, it's, it's hard not to, and definitely it's swimming upstream because everything is geared towards faster, cheaper. Um, and so it's, it's hard to push back. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, luckily I'm in a position where, um, you know, I guess I kind of have the final say on stuff yeah. and, uh, although you never do, but, um, but I, I have enough influence that I can sort of dictate a lot of things. But I don't like dictating things. I, I like them to come from within people. And so if, if, you, can, if you can convince somebody uh, to believe in what you're believing so that they internalize it, mm-hmm. and then that's what drives their decision-making along the way, then it's it's kind of like you don't have to work at constantly, you know, slapping down this or making decisions on that, you know, that they got it. So they're going to make the right decision. I mean, just like with the sustainable materials and, uh, you know, we have a, you know, like guys, our shit's got to be sustainable as much as it possibly can, you know, and I know it's going to cost more in a lot of cases, but I need you all to be, have that mindset and not be looking for shortcuts and not be looking to, um, to avoid things. And, you know, for example, our, our outer box, you know, our operation guy comes to me and he's like, look, Al, I can get this from Uline and it is, you know, a dollar and we're paying $3. Yeah. And well, yeah, our $3 box is made by a little company in Colorado who uses sustainable practices and all of that. And it's everything's recycled. Uline is 
known for funding really bad things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm calling out a company. No, I've completely fine. stopped using them um, because of of who they are and what they're what they're spending money on. Yeah. Um, and and what they say is recycled. Dig deep and see if it really is. Sure. Okay. Maybe they take virgin stuff and throw it away and then pick it out of the trash can and recycle it. Um, just like people do with water bottles and stuff like that. Um, but, but anyway, so now those guys have, have been, I hear them talking to vendors and like, Nope, it's gotta be sustainable. And this is why what's really sustainable and what's really not sustainable. Um, so once that transition was made, then I didn't have to really check as hard on every detail of every single thing. I know that they are making the right decision. Sure. All the way down to the cactus leather pouch, right? Like the holder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, um, I can't, yeah. I can't imagine that's the same, same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. And it is very expensive when you line up our packaging with all the, all our competitors. Uh, it's just put them out on a table and you're like, Oh my God we're spending so much money on our yeah. packaging is probably five to 10 times what anybody else spends on it. Um, but I will say like, uh, as someone who hadn't seen the whole package, right? I got the package. I checked it out in the shop and mm-hmm. I'm like, wow. I mean, it resonates. So mm-hmm. hopefully that's resonates deep enough, right. To, to make some change. It does, you know, but our CFO is like, we got to cut some money out of this packaging, you know, and everybody's like, it is really difficult to get these two brothers, get leather, you know, supplies from these two brothers in Mexico. The supply is really inconsistent and we're in danger of running out. And if we run out of cases, we can't sell anything because you can't sell a pair of glasses without a case. And, you know, we've got to truck it over the border and do all these, jump through all these hoops and stuff like that. So there's all these, always these pressures, you know, in turn from inside mm-hmm. to, take shortcuts and do things differently. Yeah. Um, but I would rather say, okay, well, how do we solve that problem financially, but, and logistically, but maintain the sustainability piece of it. Yeah. So we got to do both, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, good on you. I mean, that's, it's, uh, it'd be something it's, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, easier said than done. And I'm, I'm no hero. I'm not, I mean, just trying to like not make, too big of an impact, you know, as small of impact as we can. Um, and we're not perfect. Nobody's saying we are, but we honestly are trying as hard as we can. And there's certain things just because we're small that we can't, you know, we can't afford to buy like an entire run of a certain material. And so we don't have access to it. So, Hey, unless you're going to do 20,000 of this thing and we can only do 2000, you can't have access to that thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. One of Marguerite's ideas is to go to um, companies that have developed these materials that are incredibly sustainable and get them to make that material accessible to little brands who can't afford all the development and can't afford to sell those. And um, it, uh, you know, Patagonia is one of those companies. Yeah, I was just thinking about the... So we were talking to this guy, Dave, down um, in Ishkalak, and, you know, Marguerite and, and he are locked into these conversations. She's like, look, your shirt materials are amazing, but when I go out 
to source a blank, you know, for our t-shirts or for our hoodies or whatever. Um, I can't, I don't have the expertise and I don't have the money to get access to those materials. But the reason we want the material is because it's sustainable and it's the best for our environment. So why don't you just let us use your material? Mm -hmm. And he's like, Hmm, nobody's ever asked us that before. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so they're in, in discussions about that right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it'd be totally within their mission and it sounds like something they would do. Yeah. Um, In a way uh, you're, I mean, originating and educating at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Which is very unique and cool. Yeah. Um, one thing I did, I'm, it's amazing how sometimes these things just start rolling. I I love it because I haven't (laughs) even gotten to half the things I was going to ask you about, but one thing because I do feel like it was such a unique time and space is, you know, you had mentioned it about launching Bahio and then the actual exact time, right? I mean, February, 2020 mm-hmm. compared to May, 2020, like, whoa, I mean, that is a, uh... so was there, was there a moment in time? I mean, you, you mentioned you pumped the brakes. Um, and I mean, for me personally, I, I, I was getting off an airplane, had left and then got off an airplane in that time span and came back to a, just a different world, different world. Um, was there, was there a time where you're going to launch pump the brakes and then all of a sudden, right. I mean, in the outdoor world, no one saw, I mean, maybe someone did, I don't know. I didn't see that coming, right. I, I was doing cash flow forecast of when we will be out of business. Right. right? <laughs> I mean, so was there a time then when you were like, holy shit, we need to catch this wave because it's coming now. And did that accelerate? I mean, or how, how did that whole timing play out? Well, the timing played out, uh, you know, the first time we went out to, to raise money and I just got in my car and drove down to South Florida and started going around and talking to all my friends, fished the March Merkin in the middle of that at the very bottom down at Key West. And then after the Merkin got in my car and drove back up, you know, the, the other side of Florida yeah. and, and called on people. Then by the time I got back to Charleston, just like you getting off that plane, it had hit. Mm-hmm. And so within two weeks, all those folks that had made commitments to me, uh, backed out. Um, and so then it wasn't until July, the end of July of that summer of 20, that we'd been able to go back out post COVID or we're, we're still in COVID, but post the initial part and raise the money. And it was kind of a miracle that we were, you know, we pulled together a couple million bucks from investors, all individual people, all friends or friends of friends kind of thing. Um, so then we were faced from a timing standpoint of, I wanted to launch in the spring of 21. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to launch in the winter of 21 because I knew that there were other folks who were going to see the opportunity. It was right around then that Luxottica came into Florida, came down to Florida. They had, they were the owners of Costa at that point and just on one day closed the whole operation and let go 300 people. Hmm. And that was a wake up call for a lot of people. I knew that was coming. I felt like it was. And that's why one of the reasons I left, I just knew we were losing control. Um, but I knew that other folks were going to see that. I'd heard that other folks 
um, were looking at the opportunity. And so I felt like we had to, we had to launch the spring of 21. It's the first to market wins. And so that was really our focus. It wasn't about, you know, the opportunity uh, created by COVID in the outdoor world. That was definitely a good tailwind that was helping us raise more money, I think. Um, but really, it was to get to market in the spring of 21. And normally, you know, just to give you an idea, it'll take a year to 18 months to create a line of sunglasses. So, man, it was, <laughs> I don't know, we were going night and day. My product development folks were up at three o'clock in the morning dealing with factories all over the world. Um, I remember in the middle of that, it just one thing after another. I mean, my dad got liver cancer and died within like two weeks oh, wow. and we're at his condo in North Carolina. We've got sunglasses spread all over the freaking house and I'm going back to talk to him for maybe the last time and then going and talking to our product people wow. about you know, which sunglasses to go with. And like, I'm sorry, man, we just got to go. We got to go. So it was, it was that. And then my dog died and then we got COVID and it was just one thing like that after another, but it was just, we got to launch in the spring of 21, no matter what. And what was really cool is that how many people, even these factories where all the parts are made all around the world, you know, they had kind of shut down because of COVID and or running half staff, or they started making uh, protective eye, eye, you know, the shields for your eyes and mask and stuff, and stop making sunglasses. And they're they're usually, you know, not they're great and great friends, but not that easy to deal with. But man, they were working weekends for us. They were working nights for us. They just came through like unbelievable, and so many other people did too. They just wanted us to succeed. They, you know, they, they knew our story. Um, you know, we had done a lot for people over the years sure, and, and helped them. And it, we didn't do it to get, you know, for it to come back, but it is true. If you put good stuff out into the world as karma, man, it comes back to you. Yeah. And it came back just in waves. It was unbelievable. That's awesome. It was, it was, I don't know. Well, have I don't spend a lot of time looking back right now just because there's so much on our plate still looking forward. But um, we do a little bit and just shake our head and go like, OK, we can't think about that right now. That was too crazy. You know? Yeah, but I, I I'm the same way. Just I mean, just moving forward. Right. I mean, yeah. move forward. Um, but at the same time, it's like. You do kind of have to. I, f I feel like you do need to just press pause once in a while, because if you, you know, I mean, you know, your, your time at Costa, the culmination of experience, I mean, where I sat, like I said, I mean, it was a couple of people that made me latch onto Costa. I mean, you were the Costa guy. And then to, to be able to look at what you've done, I mean, you're, you're talking two years ago. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And so I do, I mean, I don't know. It's, I do, and maybe it's just times like this where like someone, I mean, from, from someone on the outside, right. It's been, it's been wild to watch. Like, wow. I mean, last night doing the research, I'm like, this is all two years. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been intense, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's really impressive. And, and one, one other, uh, question, I've got a couple other ones, but, 
um, you know, on that note of being, you know, your identity was attached to Costa for, for a long time. I mean, you were there for seven, 17 years Mm -hmm. around there. I mean, was that, you know, so losing that identity and then moving on and then taking this big jump, um, is there something you could you could put out there for people that, that maybe you've learned that because I feel like there's a lot. I mean, I think we've touched on it on the outsides of it today. Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that, you know, are sitting somewhere that they just want to jump. And, and maybe we'd all be a little bit happier and stop fighting a little bit less if more people jumped and embraced the struggle. But is there is there something you could you could put out? Because, I mean, you know, I, I had a similar thing and it wasn't easy. Right. And. Um, but at some point you got to jump and is there something you could, you could lend to, to maybe some people listening that, you know, they would resonate with them? Yeah. You know, we, we were working on, um, a campaign, uh, sort of the last couple years at Costa on how to pivot and open the brand up to a lot more people and specifically, uh, to millennials and, uh, who were a little bit younger at that time than they are today. But uh, one of the lines that we came up with, we did all this research with these incredibly smart people, Bob, who I was telling about, the storyteller, Margaret Mark, who if you've ever read this book, the have not read the book, The Hero and the Outlaw, you should read it. I will. It's, it's all about archetypes and then how those archetypes get applied to marketing. And Margaret was head of strategic planning for YNR, Young and Ubercam Advertising, worldwide for 15 years. Hmm. She is a genius. She's amazing. But there's so much human insight in that book and in thinking about archetypes and so forth uh, that was incredibly helpful. Uh, but pivoting, it all became, it all came down to that idea of um, doing just what you're talking about. And we made this little, we made this little uh, animation that uh, that's back when I had a lot of money and hired this animation firm out of England. And it was a little, I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was a little ant, a leaf, yeah, a leaf cutter ant. And that's what that story was about, that he was walking along in the rainforest, falling in behind, you know, all of the other ants doing exactly what those ants were doing. But you could tell that this little ant saw that there was a bigger world out there. He kind of looked up at the trees and saw the sun coming through and he wondered what was on the other side of the jungle. And, um, they did a beautiful job of, he never said any of that, but you could just tell, right. He Mm -hmm. was not like the rest of them. And then he sort of fell off the train and looked up and he's like, I'm not getting back on the train. I'm going to go and explore and find myself. So he goes through the jungle and he always gets eaten by the anteater. He almost gets run over by a Jeep. Finally, after all these struggles, he comes up uh, to a big rock right at the edge of the jungle and there's the beach and there's the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he looks out over it and he walks up a little closer and he sees these waves that are just monster waves. And he's scared. And he still has his little leaf um, in his in his mouth that he's been carrying, uh, from, you know, for the last couple of days. And so he backs up and he starts to go back into the jungle and he's like, no. And he looks at his leaf. He's like, and he takes off and he 
gets to that wave and he right he surfs the wave on his leaf. <laughs> that is <laughs> you know? awesome. And then he, I wanted that was right at the end. I wanted to make a whole series of these things. Yeah. And that 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 ant is the millennial kid who is being pushed by society to be part of that straight and narrow and not to jump off and really find their passion and, and what they want to do. So we came up with a line called a different kind of rich. And so the whole philosophy was pursue, um, you know, the richness isn't just about money, Mm -hmm. build a bank of experiences and, um, you know, have a rich life. Yeah. And, and it was a very powerful message. We put that thing up on, um, on social just when social was starting. And I think we, we took it down after we had 50 million views. Wow. It just resonated. Yeah. Of course, they've completely walked away from that um, idea. They didn't, uh, the, you know, it's not, not part of what they're doing. But anyway, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, one of the lines that they came up with for an ad was leap and the universe will catch you, mm-hmm. which I thought was just a beautiful idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so if, if you're thinking about it, there's always a point where you just have to take a leap of faith. You don't want it to be blind faith. You don't want to be stupid. You got to use your brain, but ultimately you can use your brain. You can come up with a plan. You can analyze the opportunity in the market or whatever that, that might be. Um, you can do all those things, but you still have to jump. Yeah. And, um, so I, you know, I, I told Marguerite when we decided to jump us, you know, my wording sort of look, babe, I just got to grow a pair. Yeah. I've just got to man up and freaking do this. And she was like, all right, let's, <laughs> let's do let's it. Let's do it. But well, that's, yeah. that's really cool. Cause that's, you know, that's way beyond just the fly fishing world. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the world. That's the world. And that's, um, that's, I don't know. That's really cool. Um, well, I didn't even get to, um, you know, the foundation of Indie Fly and, and all of that going back to the, to how we started with the, the Laughing Arrow Pyman, which that shirt got stolen, by the way, which really bummed me out. Well, the funny thing is when Dave from Patagonia showed up at uh, Ishkalak, he was wearing that same shirt. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And, and he'd been Frank Smetzer's partner uh, for a long time. And, and he is like just inside out Patagonia, you know, and has all the belief systems and everything. So a really cool guy. And he's like, man, you know, I am such a fan of Bahio. I've got like five pairs and I believe in what you guys are doing and anything I can do to help. And he was wearing that shirt, you oh, know, that's awesome. So that was really cool. But you know, that we'll, we'll probably have to get to the whole Indie Fly Foundation, maybe the next time, but is there, is there is there some some spots out there that you haven't been to that that you want to go, um, whether it's you know with that kind of community based in mind or just personally, uh, selfishly I guess you could say. Yeah, you know I just got back from Greenland. Oh wow! And fishing for Arctic char and we camped for ten days, and uh, you know I think we hiked about fifty miles in our waders up mountains and stuff, but an incredible experience, you know, where those fish come in and they're in that river for a fairly short amount of time. And then they leave and there's no other fish there. 
really. Yeah. It's just them. And so unless you know that spot at that time and can figure out how to freaking get there, uh, you're not, not going to be able to do that. And there's one day in particular where we hiked way up to the top of a tributary and there was a glacier up there. And this other dude and I, who's from Finland, a super nice guy, uh, you know, we started just kind of hiking down the tributary all the way to the main river. And he showed me how to skate this foam fly. You throw it down current in these little pools and that are sort of to the side of the rapids. And then you start stripping it pretty fast up that pool. Hmm. And these Arctic char come out monsters, man, and just like freaking crush it. <laughs> and it was pool after pool after pool all day long. And then, then you figure out that the little guys are up at the top of the pool and the big boys right down at the bottom. Tail up. And so you're like, yeah, yeah. And then you get to the bottom of the pool and you're like, boom. Wow. It was, I would say the best day of fly fishing I've ever had. That's it amazing. Incredible. And the um, scenery must have been. Yeah, it was just the two of us. And as far as you could see, there was nobody else, no structure. We we're on this, you know, way up this fjord and just camping with tents. Um, super special, super wow. special. Yeah, I've been in touch with some guys over there. I, I have yet to do it, but. That, I'd re I would recommend it. It, yeah. it. It's hit or miss maybe. Um, and some other days weren't quite as spectacular, but uh, but that was, that was a great one. And, um, you know, I want to get back to Nepal. You know, Jay and I did a trip to Nepal um, when I was at Sims and I was in the process of trying to like, you know, evolve the brand and the mission. And so I got Jay Johnson and, and Lucy Kreutz, who's our filmmaker who made our, uh, our uh, jungle fish film. And we went to Nepal and our mission was, um, you know, we were checking out the fair flies guys who were helping um, marginalized women come out of, uh, prostitution and giving them jobs to of tying flies. And so we wanted to see that. And then we got in there and there was just like, it's the number one trafficking place in the world. Oh, wow. And we, you know, we had death threats and we went into the brothels and filmed a ton of stuff. Um, and they have Masir that's out outside of Kathmandu. Um, we went out and fished. We, we loaded all these women a lot of whom had been abducted when they were 11 years old and just been prisoners. And then there was a, a small group of women who get them out and then they started tying flies. They have to teach them to read and write. They had to do all this stuff on like no money, no budget at all. Hmm. So we were trying to help with that. Um, and so I said, you know, they're tying flies all day, but I don't think they know what they're tying or what, what they're doing. So we rented a huge bus and put all of them, probably like 40 of them, on a bus and we went to a river outside of, uh, Pokro, which is another town or outside of Kathmandu and, um, got some, you know, put our rods and stuff and taught them how to cast. And it was like the best day of their whole life. That's amazing. And it was super fun. So I'd love to get <clears throat> back there and finish that film and finish that project. Um, and I want to catch a muskie. I've never caught a muskie. Yeah. I want to do that. Oh, cool. For sure. Yeah, the, there's so um, many places. Yeah, know, so much. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, <clears throat> yeah, it's it very addicting, right? I mean, and especially yeah. when you tie it into to doing good things. I'll never forget when we did that the guide school in Bhutan. Yeah, same kind of thing. They were yeah. they were like putting rods together, and yeah. Um, but the problem is the masseur is not that easy. It's very hard. Yeah, but but we left fly rides with those guys, and they're catching them now. They figured it out. 
Are they blue Messier there? Are they goldens or golden? Golden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, um. Wow. It's it's really neat because the um in the little village that it's sort of out in the jungle. There's tigers there that eat you, and you see tigers a lot. Uh, but the um in the little village there, there's they have the caste system, and the lowest caste is the fisherman. The one above it is the prostitute. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> so those two have kind of, you know, we're trying to get those two together <laughs> to change some things, but that just shows you where, where we sit worldwide. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's, um, that's amazing. <clears throat> have you, um, have you read any good books recently? Yeah, man, I read, I, I tend to read a lot. I usually read parts of books. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm reading, I, I listen to podcasts all the time. Mm. And so I, they'll be talking to somebody on a podcast and then I'll, I'll go download their book and, and read their book. And there's, there's a, a couple amazing books. There's, there's one I'm reading that's talking about what we've talked about a little bit earlier of different uh, utopian, sort of the history of utopian societies and the different ways to look at us living together that creates better community, which is a really good book. Um, I'll have to get you the title of it. Uh, then, um, then I'm trying to think there's, there's another really cool book, um, about, um, let's see, where's my phone? I got him on my phone, but anyway, uh, there's another cool book that's, uh, it's told as, as a story, it's cool to be able to just download, download books, um, and um, you know, yeah, on any I, topic, and just have it on your phone at all times. Yeah. Oh, there's a book called Sapiens. Yeah. That's a brief history of uh, humankind. Yeah, I've started that. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't finished it. That's but. pretty amazing. The Utopia book is called Everyday uh, Utopia, and um, you know, that's a really good one. This one is the Quest of Rose. Huh. which is, um, yeah, this, this woman trying to, it's all about finding insights into how we can live differently in order to preserve our planet. Huh. Um, and they're sort of, I guess, a little bit more philosophical kind of books, but you know, those are, those are super fun. Um, do you to listen read. to them or do you read them? I listen to the interviews with the authors cool. and then I, download them and, and I read them. Uh, and then I usually have, you know, a biography going, uh, I've got one of, um, I've got one going for, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, uh, that's, that's really good. Um, and, uh, one of, um, I've tried to read all the biographies of all our presidents as a way to like learn history. Yeah. And so I've got, I'm about, I'm about halfway there. Well, that's smart. And then I got, I got sidetracked by Winston Churchill. Yeah. I love Winston, man. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> so I, I like historical books and then I like marketing books and then I like kind of uh, fiction. And then, um, there's another book, um, that's all about trees. And there's this woman who, uh, grew up in Ireland and, she was kind of an or became an orphan and her uncle raised her, but then she got introduced to an aunt who was, had a Celtic background and lived up in this remote village. And, and, um, these people all passed down history orally. 
And it was a knowledge of all the plants and the trees and mm. the medicinal values uh, of everything. And so they brought, she came up in the summer and her aunt was an artist and then she was an artist as well. And the whole village decided uh, that they would pick her to teach the Celtic ways so that she could keep it and pass it down to future generations. And so these older women would come walk miles to spend a day with her and educate her about different aspects um, of you know the natural world and what was important. And then she grew up and became, what, what's the name of that book? That's the quest of Rose. No, that's a different one. Sorry. Jumping around. No worries. Um, this one I'm, I'm looking it up as I'm talking, but yeah, no worries. But anyway, so what she, what she ended up becoming was an expert in trees. And so her whole thing is that, you know, we can go a long way to saving a lot, saving the planet and doing, and, you know, writing a lot of the ills if we just plant trees <laughs> and, and, uh, but the whole, the whole book and her whole experience with those, those women up there, um, was just beautiful. It was really cool. I, I gave it to all the cool women that I know, um, to, you know, to take a look at. And, uh, so. Yeah. That, that, that sounds like something right up, uh, right up my alley. Have, have you read, um, I just finished. I think I talked about it on a, on a previous podcast. But the, have you read the book The Tiger? No. Oh man, is that a good one? Yeah, that's one. That's one I'd put down. It's um, it's recent too. And then the other one I, that I thought of during while we were talking would have been um, not as easy to find, but it's called the The Lost World of Quintana Roo. I've got that right here. Nice. Yeah, I've been yeah. reading that one. Yeah, that that whole history of the Yucatan—that's that's, a special place, man. That's—I mean, it's insanity that no one, you know, no one walked that coast. I mean, fifty-seven wasn't that long ago. No, <laughs> no. that's crazy. So this one um, is called "To Speak uh, with the Trees." To speak with the trees. Cool. Yeah, and one thing that she's discovered is that in a forest there are these trees that I think she calls them mother trees, and that tree impacts the quality of life in the entire forest. Uh, it's part of it's based on chemicals that it puts out into the ground and then how those seep into the streams and then how those get into the rivers and go all the way down to the ocean. <laughs> so a mother tree up on the land in a forest is really instrumental in protecting the flats, protecting that part of the ocean. And so, um, and there's an, in a forest, there's a network of these big mother trees that are all connected to each other and really take care of the forest. And when you go in, and she's a scientist, so she has proven all of this hmm. uh, scientifically as well. Um, so as, as people go in and cut down these trees, they don't understand Which, the full impact yeah. of what they're doing, right? Wow. Yeah. It's But it's really cool. That book that, was amazing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Gonna, uh, I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah. Um, and I gave you a little bit of a heads up, but last question will be, you know, who is one of the most interesting people you've ever met and why? So, and, you know, I like to give a little bit of a heads up, but, but not too much. Well, my wife is definitely incredibly interesting. I, we started talking 12 years ago and have not stopped and we never run out of things to talk about. So that's, 
but uh, outside of the family, um, you know, it's it's really interesting because you you start thinking, well, what does interesting mean? You know? Yeah. And so when I think of it, I think of people who have you know a breadth of experiences in their life and who have um, you know faced a lot of challenges and have not been afraid to face new things um, and have like so many facets where you peel back the onion and Jesus, another layer, another layer, another layer. Um, and I, I think Jay Johnson is probably the most interesting person <laughs> I know. I mean, I've never met Jay. Jay is, he adopted me as his mentor. Um, although I'm like, Jay, you got a lot more to teach me than I got to teach you, buddy. Mm -hmm. Um, but Jay, man, you know, he, he had a super rough childhood and, you know, was, was, uh, you know, his, his mom left and he, you know, kind of had to fend for himself, didn't have water, didn't have electricity. His dad got put in jail for child abuse and he was kind of left on his own and, uh, grew up super, super tough, super poor. He found, um, instrument and learned to play it. And was a prodigy and at 15 got picked up by a group and taken all over the world to play jazz. Oh, wow. And did that for years and years. He's just a natural, he can play any instrument. Then he decided to drop all that and make fly fishing be the thing that took care of his soul. And so, you know, they did all the stuff that they did with the trout bombs and the ex exploration and the filmmaking uh, and all of those things. And then he's an incredible artist. He's an incredible cook and chef. <laughs> he is a woodworker. He's a mechanic. I mean, the dude can freaking do anything. That's amazing. And, and his spirit and his soul are so amazing because he doesn't, he doesn't care if he has any money. He doesn't care about any personal gain. He just wants to find really good people with good souls. And when you meet him, he will drill down to the core mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's not afraid to sure. ask the tough questions and, and uh, you know, find those people to connect with. And then they all follow him. You know, he started pig farm and it's, it's basically like he's the cult leader and these dudes will do anything for him. Yeah. Um, but it's because he will do anything for them. Absolutely. You know, he, he just spent a week um, over, we had another hurricane in, in Florida and so, um, that was a Dahlia or yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so a bunch of us went over there. We had a lot of friends and, you know, we helped clean out houses and, it, and, and just help the people cause there's a lot of flooding and stuff. And Jay, man, he had his bus and stayed there with, and assembled this. I could only stay for a couple of days, but you know, Jay was the driver and assembled this group of folks and they just went house to house and just cleaned up houses for like a week. And, yeah. um, you know, people thought that, you know, we were there as contractors to make money. Like, nope. <laughs> just here, a bunch of fishing dudes yeah. wanted to help, you know, and, um, that's just who he is, you know? That's awesome. And, uh, so yeah, he is definitely, <clears throat> you know, one of the most interesting and, uh, one of the best, best dudes I know. That's, that's awesome. Well, this has been really special, Al. I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with me. It's, um, I, 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 I've learned a lot. So in, in a good timely time, good time for me as well. Well, thanks for having me, man. I mean, like I said, you're uh you're a legend in your own right. And, uh, I hate that word, but you know, you're, you're just somebody that people look up to and sets a standard, uh, you know, for 
expertise and, you know, quality and compassion and, uh, you know, fearlessness. So well, it's thank been you an honor much. to sit down with you. I no, really appreciate the it. The honor is all mine. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, buddy. Um, to find out more information about Al, head on over to BahiaSunglasses.com and on Instagram at Bahio Sunglasses. Anywhere else people can find out some more information or is that that covered? Uh, go to your local fly shop and uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> you can get some good info there. Yeah, exactly. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Permit to Think. My hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversations and stories from the fringe of societal norms. Be sure to subscribe, support, um, whatever, um, reviews, iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're using. For more information, head on over to the website, permittothink.com, and forward this along to anybody whom you feel might dig it. I am out. Cool. Thanks, Al. Yeah, buddy, that was super fun. That was really cool.